here in the latter part of Colossians 1, this last section from verse uh, 24 or so onward, Paul has been explaining his service to the gospel. And he has detailed, first of all, his suffering for the sake of the church to fill up the lack of Christ's afflictions in his own flesh. You know, we talked about that. Paul's sufferings uh, for the gospel or for the church being his first part of his service to the gospel. <coughs> And then he moved on to the second part of his service to the gospel, which he was going to talk about here, which was uh, his service to the church exercising his God-granted stewardship. So we had suffering, and then we had stewardship as part of his service to the gospel. Uh, Just to read a little bit of the text there from verse 24. I now rejoice in my sufferings in your behalf, and I fill up what is lacking of Christ's afflictions in my flesh in behalf of his body, which the church of which I became a servant according to God's stewardship which was given to me for you to accomplish the word of God, the mystery which was hidden from the ages and from the generations but now revealed to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery in the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So Paul was given a stewardship and we talked about uh, his stewardship We talked about what a stewardship was, what a steward was. A steward, we said, was a kind of business manager of a household or even of a city. And the duty of the steward, remember, was to administer the resources of his master, of the master of the house, for the benefit and profit of the members of the house. That's what a steward does. He's a servant in the house. And he administers the resources that belong to the master of the house for the benefit of the members of the house. And we saw that a stewardship, then, if that's a steward, then a stewardship is something for which a person is given responsibility to use or to manage in a certain way. We saw that all Christians are stewards of spiritual gifts. We saw that elders were a kind of called a kind of steward, both managing the house of God and administering the grace of God in the word. And we saw that the most important thing about a steward was that they had to be found faithful, that they would honestly administer those resources, not steal them, not squander them, not waste them not abuse their authority in the house over the members of the house because we saw that the penalty for those things would be very great indeed. And Paul told us, first of all, who it was that his stewardship benefited, which was the church, the body of Christ. The master of the house then was Jesus Christ. The house was his church. And Paul was set as an officer in the house, as a steward in the house, to administer the resources of the master so that all of the household could benefit from those resources. So Paul's service of the gospel is serving the church with the gifts of Christ. For whose sake then? And that was the last thing that we considered. We considered this, what a stewardship was and that Paul had one and for whose sake uh, his stewardship uh, was given, which for the church of Jesus Christ. Now what we come to next in Paul continuing his description of his stewardship, is that he explains, first of all, the purpose of his stewardship, and then he explains the nature of his stewardship. What, what thing is it that he's stewarding? What, what was he given to administer in the house of Jesus Christ? So we have the stewardship 
explained. First thing he tells us then today is the purpose of his stewardship. The reason he received it. The end at which it's directed. And he says it in these words. He says, uh, I became a servant of the church according to God's stewardship which was given to me for you to accomplish the word of God. To accomplish or to fulfill the word of God. We'll come to that. That is what he has to do to be found faithful. To accomplish or to fulfill the word of God. Now, this makes a fair amount of sense. We said that the idea of a stewardship was a responsibility that was granted. And so if you give someone a responsibility, there usually is a purpose behind that, right? It's not, it's not um, empty or random. If, if the master of the house gives a, 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 a duty, a responsibility, uh, lays an obligation upon a servant in the house, he has a reason for doing that. He doesn't just do it flippantly. He doesn't do it because, well, this person needs to be occupied. He doesn't do it for some random or inexplicable reason. There's a purpose behind the giving of any stewardship. And even in, it doesn't matter where we look in the scriptures, whether it's the, the stewardship of spiritual gifts. What was the purpose of that? It was for the edification of the body. It wasn't just so that people could just have spiritual gifts. It was so that the whole body could function together and be edified. What was the, even on a more literal level, the stewardship of, of, the, uh, of the talents? The purpose was to, uh, to go and take what was given and generate more for the one who owned it. So there's always a purpose, and it's no different with Paul. There was a purpose in his stewardship, and that purpose was to accomplish or to fulfill the Word of God. Now, this is our old friend, plerao, the Greek word. You remember we talk about this one a lot. It means, we've talked about it meaning to fill up, to fulfill, to accomplish. It has many, many different senses, uh, and we don't need to go into them all, because there's only two possibilities for this passage. And those are the ways I just said. It could either mean to fulfill the word of God or to accomplish the word of God. And those are two different ideas. It could mean to fulfill the word of God as in the sense of fulfilling prophecy. It, this word is often used as meaning to fulfill prophecy. Just, in fact, just about everywhere that you see where it says this happened and so was fulfilled the words of the prophet Isaiah or something like that in the New Testament. It's always this word. Applied here, it would be the idea that the word of God had held forth, had predicted, had prophesied that a certain thing was to take place. And Paul's stewardship was given to him in order that that prediction or that prophecy might come to pass. Just to explain a little bit, to jump ahead, we'll see that a substantial part of Paul's stewardship involves the revelation uh, of the gospel to the Gentiles and the bringing in of the Gentiles into the church. That's a substantial part of Paul's stewardship. Now, because that was something that was predicted or prophesied before, in this sense it could mean that Paul's stewardship was to bring about the fulfillment of that prophecy. It was given as the means to accomplish that end. Or it could mean to accomplish the word of God as in accomplishing the purposes of something. In other words, Paul's stewardship was given 
that a certain design, a certain purpose of the word, a certain goal, a certain end might be reached. Now you see how these sort of bleed over into one another, because obviously if God has prophesied something, then it's necessary for that, that goal or that end to, to, to be reached. But, uh, but it doesn't necessarily have to be a prophetic end. It could be something for which the word was innately suited, uh, a purpose, uh, a design in the word. So, for example, the gospel uh, is designed and has as its natural end the bringing of salvation to the world. And so Paul's stewardship could be uh, given to accomplish the word of God in that sense, to accomplish the design or the purpose of the word of God. It can go either way, and it's not something particularly necessary uh, for an exact understanding of this passage to, to know uh, which specific way it should go. Like I said, they kind of bleed over into one another. The point that we need to understand, and this is a very, very important point, especially in our own day, is that Paul's ministry was not an accident. Paul's ministry was not the result of fortuitous coincidence or how things fell out. Paul's ministry wasn't something that he just woke up one morning and said, well, you know, this it seems like a really good idea that uh, I, I think I'll undertake to accomplish uh, the use of the Word of God for these certain... It wasn't like that at all. It wasn't something Paul came up with. It wasn't something um, that just happened. It was a stewardship that was granted by God to fulfill or to accomplish His own Word. It was brought about by God to fulfill God's own word. Now, you have to understand that this is the 100% opposite of the modern view of Paul's ministry, the liberal view. Whole books are written about this. Uh, They try to explain Paul's confidence in some cases as a form of mental illness. See, Paul was sick. He was uh, wasn't all there. He had this kind of strange uh, 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 mental dysfunction. Today, we would treat it with some drugs, and that's why he was such an this driven type of person with this seeming overbearing uh, personality, always going after this one thing wherever he was. It's, uh, it's a disorder, they'll say, or that it was some sort of overwhelming conceitedness. So Paul was really a bad man. Really, a very bad man, they'll say. I mean, I mean, look at how he talked about women. I mean, he was obviously a bad man, and the way and he says he's bad things about Jews all the time. I mean, he's an anti. No, he was a Jew, but you know, obviously, the he was the mental illness, conceitedness. It all rolls in together. But this is what they say. I mean, you can hear this preached in pulpits, but Paul and the Word of God says exactly the opposite thing. The reason that people say this is because if you don't say it, you are forced to one conclusion. And that is, you have to admit the truth and the authenticity of Paul's message. If he's not ill, if he's not conceited, if it's really the case that he has a stewardship directly from heaven to deliver this message, then you have to admit that what he's saying is true. And if you admit that what he's saying is true then it has certain consequences that you have to deal with. And so we try to evade it. But Paul's message was divine. His mission was of heaven and his authority was from God. He had a stewardship 
It wasn't something he made up. It wasn't something he invented. It wasn't, it wasn't Paul, this is another thing there. Well, there was this religion that Jesus brought, and then there was this guy, Paul, and he was real sharp, and he perverted everything that Jesus said, and that's where we get Christianity from. Wrong. Wrong. His stewardship was from the same Lord Christ. Christ is the master of the house, and Paul was the steward in the house to administer the gifts of Christ. And this brings us to a, a second point, a sort of interesting point that bounces off this part of the text. It has to do with the way in which God gathers his people. We know and believe that God has chosen his own from before the foundation of the world. It's not a matter of chance. Maybe you'll be in the kingdom or maybe not. Roll the dice and see. Depends on how you respond, how your will works. It's not like that. We know that God has chosen his own from before the foundation of the world. But God not only foreordains the salvation of his people, but the means to that salvation. The Lord not only calls his people through the word, he calls those who will call his people. Do you understand that? He doesn't just call his people through the word. He calls those who will call his people. He gives them a stewardship. It's not mechanical, but it is well-ordered harmony of all God's works. It's the marvelous extent of his providence. Here we have God's promise to call the Gentiles someday. In God's time, here is the man to do it. And, of course, it's a marvelously unexpected turn. It's the, it's the Pharisee of the Pharisees, Saul, the persecutor of the church. But, of course, that was itself of design. To be, Saul was a testimony of the failure of Jewish righteousness and, and the necessity of grace and salvation. So we see this overarching plan, I mean, down to everything. Not only to, well, there's going to be a call to the Gentiles, well, here's the guy that's going to call the Gentiles, but we're going to order his life in this particular way so that his life itself will be a testimony and humbling to him because he's going to be given this great responsibility and we don't want him to grow big in the head, so we're going to humble him by making him the chief of sinners before we give him this commission. I mean, point by point by point by point, we see that nothing in the whole history of Paul was by chance. And nothing really was by choice. It was by design. Because that's how a stewardship works. So Paul's stewardship then had a purpose to accomplish or to fulfill the word of God. And of course, as we move on, uh, later in the passage we'll see more specifically what that purpose was. But at this point we just have this general idea. that It was to accomplish or to fulfill the word of God. So we come to the next question. The next thing the text tells us. Well, all right, it was, his stewardship was for the benefit of the church. It was given to him by God. Uh, it was in the house of Christ. Uh, he was a servant. It was to accomplish God's, the, the purposes of God's word. Well, what was it? I mean, stewardship of what? Well, you know, it could be anything. Uh, anything that's in Christ's house. What was this, in this place, what is Paul's stewardship? Well, he says this. He says, again, going back to the text, of which I became a servant according to God's stewardship, which was given to me for you to accomplish the word of God, the mystery which was hidden from the ages and from the generations, but now revealed to his saints. Accomplish the word of God, put in parentheses. This goes back to stewardship. According to God's stewardship, the mystery which was given to me, the mystery which was given to me for you. So, Paul's stewardship... <laughs> To put it 
in the simplest way, is a mystery. Now, of course, uh, he's going to tell us what the mystery is, but he tells us first is that it's a mystery. According to God's stewardship, the mystery. Now, this is really very important. Um, this is the word musterion. English is this is one of those transliterations. It's like baptism, baptizo. Uh, uh, mystery, musterion. This is just the English is the Greek. Remember... We talked about how in the letter of the Colossians, Paul was taking on the doctrines of a certain set of heretics, a kind of pernicious group of people, uh, the early Gnostics. And one of the keys in Gnostic thinking is secret doctrine. And they talked about mysteries a lot. In this movement, as I said, there was a very large element of secret doctrine of mysteries. Now, these secrets were not available to just anyone. That's why they were secrets. You had to become an initiate, and you had to pursue the path of enlightenment. Almost sounds kind of like Zen Buddhism, really, when you think about it, that there are these strange, deep sayings that no one can understand until you go to uh, Nepal and meet the Grand Dalai Lama and meditate there for about six years, and then suddenly you understand. But you can't tell anyone else. They have to do the same thing. That's their, the same idea of the same kind of Gnostic mystery. You, the heretics said not only were there these mysteries, but they held the key to them, and they knew the only way to get there to these mysteries. And so if you followed them, and you followed the path that they laid out, which we will see consisted of asceticism and angel worship, and in other cases it was exactly the opposite. Instead of asceticism, it was licentiousness and giving yourself over to the flesh. I mean, it could be anything. Because after all, if you're the one more or less saying what it can be, you can say anything. So in order to, uh, in order to have enlightenment, in order to know the real truth, in order to have access to the mysteries, in order to, uh, in fact, understand the secret doctrines and find salvation, you had to follow these people along their path and their practices, and you had to become their disciples and their initiates and go along the way, and, and you would get a little bit little taste as you went along until finally you got to be up where they were, theoretically, and then you would know all the mysteries, and then you would have salvation, because salvation for them was a process of enlightenment. This sort of thing sounds terribly contemporary when you lay it out that way, whether it is within sort of heretical wings, broadly speaking, of Christianity, I mean, do you remember David Koresh? Do you remember what his big thing was? Was the seven seals. That was the thing, wasn't it? You, he, only he knew the key to the seven seals. And so in order to find out what the seven seals were, and you had to find out what the seven seals were, or you were kind of on the outside, you had to do what? You had to follow, come, be in his compound, follow him, follow his teaching, follow his practice, whatever. It was the seven seals. It was secret knowledge that he held the key to, but he wouldn't reveal unless you became one of his initiates. But it's also, almost every Eastern cult is organized along the same line. All the things that we call New Age, that are based on Eastern religion, it is all the same. Anytime there's these gurus and uh, uh, these uh, fellows that, uh, you know, Indian fellows that you have to go and follow and give all your belongings to them, and that's convenient, isn't it? You give all your belongings to them and you get some enlightenment. Uh, all, all of them are virtually like this. And there are multitudes of people all over the world who are caught in this trap. And so what we see is that the truth about this matter is really as important today as it was then. 
So Paul's going to challenge this, as you might expect. He's going to challenge it on almost every point. Now, he's not going to deny that there are mysteries, but he's going to fight their perversion of the term. He's not going to deny that there's a key to the mysteries, but he's going to show that it's held by Jesus Christ. He's not going to deny that there's a pathway to the truth in a sense, but it's going to be a very different one from the one they're laying out. He's going to lay claim to the mystery of the kingdoms for himself. He says, do you want mysteries? I'll tell you about a mystery. It was committed to me by God himself, and it's my very ministry. And he says, listen, and I'll tell you what it is. Now, I've set that up. We're going to go backwards now. Because I said this concept of mystery is actually something that's very important. I was really quite surprised. I mean, I knew it was in the Bible. I've seen it in Colossians and a couple of other places. This term is actually in the Bible over 25 times in the New Testament alone. Uh, it's all over the New Testament, and it encompasses a surprisingly large amount of truth. Now, it's important to understand this, because when we use the term mystery, we use it in a lot of different ways, but a lot of times we talk about something that's a mystery, we mean something that is basically inscrutable, that you can't ever understand or find out or, or know. It's, it's beyond knowledge, if you will. Uh, unknowable. That's a lot of how we use the term uh, mystery. Or... Sometimes we use it just to mean something that is unknown, uh, but a lot of times we use it to mean something that cannot be known. So what we want to know is, well, we don't just want to go from mystery to mystery, or is it some kind of secret doctrine you have to have enlightenment? We want to understand exactly how the Bible uses this word and how, it, uh, how we should understand it. So, for example, to show you some of these uses, in a general sense, uh, this word is used to describe the truths of the kingdom. In that passage that we read this morning in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, verse 7, Paul says, uh, We speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory. It's also in the uh, same thing, uh, Corinthians 4, 1. Let man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. It's sort of a general term. Perhaps the best use of it as a, as a very general term for Christian doctrine is in Matthew uh, chapter 13. He says, the disciples say, why do you speak to us in parables? Why do you talk this way? And he says, because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but unto them it is not given. The mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Very general use to describe the truths of the kingdom are called the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. The gospel is called a mystery, and in fact, Christ himself are, are, are called a mystery. And I'm, I'm not going to go through all 25 uh, references, but just to give you uh, some idea. Uh, Romans uh, chapter 16, verse 25, he says, Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest, and so on. Gospel, Christ, there's other passages, Ephesians 6, 19, 1 Timothy 3, 9. Christ is called the mystery of Christ. The gospel is called a mystery. Tongues is called a mystery. Uh, both 
speaking in tongues and what is spoken. I think this is kind of interesting. He says, And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, that's that, and that parallels with chapter 14 too, he that speaks in an unknown tongue speaks not unto men but unto God, for no man understands him, howbeit in the Spirit he speaks mysteries. And so when you go back to verse chapter 13, to understand all mysteries is to understand what is spoken in tongues because he's speaking mysteries. Because there's there's speaking in tongues, as we know in the gifting, there was speaking in tongues and there was understanding of tongues. It might not coexist. Uh, so speaking in tongues, and certainly I would say that uh, what people are speaking in tongues today is very much a mystery uh, to me. I'm not sure it comes from God, but it's certainly mysterious. Uh, but but you see how it is. I mean, because if someone's saying something in another tongue and you don't understand it, you don't know what it is. It's a mystery. They're speaking mysteries. There are also a lot of particular doctrines that are described as mysteries. Uh, for lack of a better word, the doctrine of the rapture, if you will, First uh, uh, Corinthians fifteen fifty one. Uh, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump and so on. The church is the bride of Christ, Ephesians 5.32. He says it's a mystery. It's a, I'm speaking of Christ and of the church, and this is a mystery. Antichrist and his kingdom is called a mystery. In 2 Thessalonians 2, Revelation 17, it's a mystery. And then the, the, the winner, the prize winner for being the mystery, which is what's going to be mainly in, in view in our text here, is the inclusion of the Gentiles into the kingdom. Romans 11, Ephesians 1, Ephesians 3, 1 Timothy 3, here in Colossians, over and over and over again, it's called a mystery. A mystery. So as we look through these passages, as I look through them, I was able to come up with some basic um, definitions, if you will, of how this concept is used in the Bible. Now, it is true that it is sometimes used... Uh, it's sometimes used to mean uh, something whose meaning or nature is not understood, and that it's used in that to do with usually used in co conjunction with prophecy, like in Revelation, <laughs> which is certainly a mystery. Revelation uh, chapter one verse twenty: "The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks." He says it's a mystery. Now, he explains it to him immediately. It's not that he couldn't understand it. It's that it, it, it wasn't understood at that time. When he saw the vision, he didn't know what it meant. So it was a mystery. So it's just something that you don't know what it is. Sometimes it is used to describe things who we really can't comprehend. When it talks about Christ and the church in Ephesians 5.32, that's really the idea there. He says... Uh, uh, he says, uh, for this, we're members of his body, of his flesh, his bones. This cause shall man leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. They too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ in the church. This is something that, it's not, he just told you what it is. So it's not like, it's not like you don't know. It just means it's very hard for us to comprehend exactly the nature of what's going on. So sometimes that's a mystery. But the main way this is used... Uh, and the way it's used in our passage, and by far the, the prominent use of the word, is to describe something that has been concealed. It's not something that you uh, are by nature or, or, or physically like we, we you know, could never know it. 
It's something that's been hidden. That's what a biblical mystery is. Not something that can't be understood, but something that has not heretofore been known. Something concealed. And when that concealed thing is revealed in a way that you can know it and comprehend it, then it's not a mystery anymore. Uh, we see this actually in the, in the text that we're looking at, because he says, in the verse he says, uh, the mystery which was hidden from the ages and from the generations. And that's something that we find joined together in the uses of this term mystery. We'll often find the word, it was a mystery, it was hidden, joined right together. And uh, this word hidden basically means to conceal completely. It's the word used, remember when uh, the, the uh, unprofitable servant took his master's money and he buried it in the ground? That's the word there. He, he hid it. It's not, it's not just the basic word hid. It's the word hid with this little thing on the front of it, little prefix on the front of it that strengthens it. It means to hide it completely. It's gone. I mean, you put it in the ground. It's hidden. You can't find You walk along, you wouldn't see it. It's buried in the ground. It's, it's the same way a person would hide treasure in, in Colossians 2, 3, that the, uh, the treasures of God, uh, of wisdom and of knowledge, are hidden in Christ. God has hidden them in Christ as you would treasures. Just the way people hide their treasures in their house. I mean, they're not sitting out there on the table for you to steal them, are they? No, they're, they're you know, they get a wall safe and they put a picture in front of it and they put a bookcase in front of it or a secret passageway, they bury it underground or whatever. It's hidden. It's concealed completely. You can't find it. You wouldn't even know it's there. In fact, these ideas are actually synonymous. That, that passage uh, that we read from 1 Corinthians 2.7 uses this word hidden as... As, an, as a synonym, as a replacement for the word mystery. He says, we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom. The, mis the, the wisdom of God that is mysterious is the hidden wisdom. It could be known if you could find it. You can have the treasure if you can discover it. The same thing is true with Paul's stewardship. The object of his stewardship, the thing that he was administering to the church in this particular case, was a long-concealed mystery. And I say long-concealed because it was hidden from the ages and from the generations, he says. It's very descriptive terms, almost poetic. Two ways of looking at it. Look at it from the way of time. His mystery was hidden from the ages. What's an age? Is that a long time? Well, uh, age... This word is used to refer for the whole time from Christ to the end of the world. That's already been 2,000 years. That's a pretty long time. It's also used to refer from the beginning of the world to the end of the world. So however many thousands of years that will be. Six, seven, eight, ten, twenty, I don't know. Hundred thousand. However many thousands of years it'll be from the beginning to the end of the world. That's like an age. When you put the word together and you say age and age, or ages of ages, that means forever. So this is a long time. Hidden from the ages. As far back as you can think, or you think uh, uh, in, into the distant past, I mean, I can hardly remember last week, so, you know, you think really long time, a hundred years ago, is that a long time? A thousand years ago? Two thousand? Four thousand years ago? Before Paul? Uh, as, as you think of it in the sense of time, it was basically no one ever knew it. And they couldn't know it until it was revealed. Or you can look at it from the perspective of generations. So you can look at it from time, that's one way, hidden from the ages, and from the generations. What's the generation? That's human genealogy. 
Now think about, this is, a, this is a different way of telling you how long it is. You think of the genealogies of Scripture. You have very long lists. Father, son, grandson, great-grandson, great-great-grandson, great-great-great-grandson for like, you know, 40 generations or whatever. Think about how long a life is. 60, 70, 100 years. Even a generation is sort of 20 years. But just think about a life. Now think about two lives in a row, three lives in a row, five lives in a row. That is a, think about all the things that happen over that long time, all those lives in a row, all the changes. That's a long time. Think about 20 generations. At 20 years, that takes us back 400 years. That'd be the 1600s. Think about all the stuff that's happened between now and the 1600s. A lot of stuff. What about 200 generations? That'd be about 4,000 years. That's about how long it was, give or take, from Paul to the beginning of the world. 4,000 years. Civilizations come into being and disappear. Civilizations that last hundreds or thousands of years. All the things that happen all over the world, all the people. It's a long time. And this was hidden. It was hidden that whole time. It's a mystery from the beginning of the world, hidden all the way up to Paul. So Paul's stewardship was a stewardship of a mystery that had been concealed from the beginning of time. To Paul had been entrusted this great truth, this mysterious hidden truth, which Paul was to steward for the benefit of the household of God. Next time, we'll find out what the, uh, uh, the, the truth is. Um, we're going to pause and uh, talk about a couple of other things just briefly. Um, that's pretty rude, isn't it, to take you all that way and not tell you what it is. Well, you already know what it is. Read your Bible. Uh, the concept of mystery has, I think, some pretty important lessons. And we see, again, as we see how frequently it's used, and if you want all the texts after the sermon, I'll give them to you, copy them down, and, and look them all up and see all the different things that are talked about being a mystery. Uh, when we see the amount of Christian New Testament doctrine that's called a mystery, the amount of it that was previously concealed, it reminds us of that strange thing that Jesus said of John the Baptist. Do you remember how he was there with John the Baptist and he said, take a look at this guy. This is the greatest of all of the, of, of the whole Old Testament. You just go through the whole Old Testament and you get to John the Baptist and he said, here it is. Here is the pinnacle of the Old Covenant is John the Baptist, the pinnacle of the prophets. Here he is. He's, he is the uh, Elijah that's come again uh, to be the forerunner to the Christ. And then he said that thing. He said, you know what? He said, the least of these is greater than him. The least of the new covenant saints is greater than John the Baptist. Wow, how can that be? How, if John, Here we go, Old, Old Testament. And John the Baptist, you put him at the top of the list, and then the least of the new covenant is greater than John the Baptist. Well, one reason for this, I think, is what we're seeing right now. The astonishing amount of revelation, the clarity of revelation that comes in under the New Testament. Did you know that the New Testament saint, who's educated in his Bible, knows more than David, knows more than Moses, knows more than Solomon, may not be as wise as Solomon. Of course, Solomon had wisdom, but he didn't live by it. We get kind of complacent, I think, with the New Testament revelation, because, you know, we've had it for 2,000 years, and, you know, I mean, it seems old. But you think about 
how much more we have, how much we have the clarity where they had the darkness, how much we have, I mean, yeah, they knew about the Messiah that was to come, they knew, you know, they knew a lot of things, but they didn't know it the way we know it. They couldn't. It wasn't revealed. It was a mystery. It was concealed. What did they have? They had prophecy. We all know how dark prophecy can be. I mean, just look at the book of Revelation and then go to your library and see how many books there are. It's very dark. Now, God brought out of that prophecy basic understandings that they had about what was to come in the future and the Messiah and the things that they saw in their sacrificial system, but it was all very dark. We have a tremendous amount of clarity, of light, of revelation, of knowledge, and we ought to be marveling at the privilege of being born in this time. Second point, the last point, brings us to another truth. This idea of mystery or of concealment. I think a lot of times we, we're really astonished at the unbelief of the modern man about his self-destroying denial of the scriptures and of the clearest truths. But it must be so. God says he has hidden truth away from the wise and prudent. Of, he says he's hidden it. It's the word. It's, it's one of the texts that has the word that we're looking at today to mean conceal completely. Says, I, Jesus says, I thank you, Father, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent of this world and revealed them unto babes. They are hidden from them. The truth is not merely something that can be known. It's something that has to be revealed. And it has to be revealed in two ways. It has to be revealed, of course, in the external sense, which is part of what Paul's talking about. These were, some of his doctrines were things that had never been revealed until Paul, and then Paul gave them forth. They were hidden by God. But they also have to be revealed in a different way, in the internal way. Revelation precedes belief. It's like the blind men that Christ sealed, Christ healed. All that could be seen was there to see. I mean, there wasn't any problem with the things being there, was there? I mean, they were all there, just like you and I are here right now. But they couldn't see them because they were blind. And nothing they could do could allow them to see it. I mean, it didn't matter if they wanted to see it. They couldn't, they couldn't say, visualize sight. Doesn't work, does it? No, I mean, they could, uh, they could uh, uh, do like a positive thinking. They could go to the Zig Ziglar seminar and see you at the top and all that. Would they be able to see? Not a lick more than they saw before. <coughs> they couldn't see. But when Christ opened their eyes and restored to them the capacity of sight, then they could see. And it's just that same way with the spiritually blind as well. Paul says we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden mysteries. He says the natural man can't receive these things. He can't know them. He can't understand them. He can't comprehend them. He says, I'm speaking the deep things of the Spirit. How can you know the Spirit if you don't have the mind of Christ? If you have the Spirit, then you have the mind of Christ, and you can know the mind of Christ. You can receive these things. Otherwise, they are a dark book. It might, you might as well take this Bible right here and take a deal and punch it here and sew it up. Because that's how much they can understand. Just sew it up. It's like a closed book. I mean, they can get certain external historical truths out of it, but they can't understand it because it's concealed. And so... It shouldn't surprise us when we deliver the message of the gospel and people say, well, yeah, that's ridiculous. I don't understand that at all. I can't believe that. That's crazy. You're crazy. In fact, that's more actually what they'll, actually what they'll say. It shouldn't surprise us at all because God gives them sight. God reveals. And then 
It's not a mystery. Then it's the truth. 